The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel 8 to continue our series in the first book of Samuel. Character matters. As we enter into an election year, an election season, I'm sure we will hear that a lot. Character matters when it comes to leadership. Faith also matters in leadership. Faith in God, faith in a nation's founding principles and not misplaced by in any man or party is essential for upholding righteousness. In 1 Samuel 8, Israel faces the looming departure of a long faithful, beloved, long-serving faithful and beloved servant in the prophet Samuel and will be tested. Their response to a coming leadership void reveals much about their hearts, as it does in our own when we face such circumstances. But our text also reveals the power and grace of our God who provides the leadership needs of His people. Please follow as I read First Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel The name of his firstborn son was Joel, name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me for being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up, out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. 
He would take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, indeed this evening I would ask that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm always struck every time I read the opening verses to the book of Joshua, where God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now arise, go over this Jordan. The great Moses. What will Israel ever do without their great leader? And with a a seeming lack of empathy and allowing no time for grieving, God sends his people under Joshua's leadership over the river Jordan and into the promised land. Leadership transitions are a time of testing and temptation for families, churches, businesses, schools, and even entire nations. I was so intrigued by the subject that I made it the main topic of my doctoral thesis years ago in which I focused my biblical studies on the transitions from Moses to Joshua, Elijah to Elisha, David to Solomon, and in the New Testament from John the Baptist to Jesus, Jesus to the Twelve, and even Paul to his close company of disciples. We can find in the Scriptures rich Biblical principles on leadership that help us weather through the storms of transition. Westminster Church is just coming out of a senior pastor transition, and I praise God for his preservation of this congregation. This flock has demonstrated maturity, resilience, wisdom, and patience. And by God's grace, we have moved from one godly, effective shepherd leader in Pastor Rogers to another leader who is high in character and competency in Dr. Chris Walker. I was blessed this past Wednesday night hearing testimonies from youth and youth staff, adults, and members of the youth group as the youth group was offering a sending off celebration to Chris and Kate Walker as Chris begins his new role as senior pastor and closing out his youth pastor duties. We are blessed. Israel was blessed. After many decades of faithful, godly leadership under the prophet Samuel, he was not a mighty king, but he was a man of prayer 
an intercessor for God's people. Sadly, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And so it is that Israel found that they could not depend upon heredity. So what would they depend on? Well, back in chapter 7, facing the crisis of the Philistines, the people of Israel heeded Samuel's preaching, turning back to the Lord with all their hearts, confessing their sin, putting away their false gods, repenting before the Lord. Rather than look to a king, and rather than use and abuse the ark of the tabernacle like they had back in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, they depended upon the Lord their God through Samuel's intercessory prayer. And the Lord responded with the defeat of Israel's enemies. But we come now to chapter 8. Samuel is old. His days left on earth are few. And the elders see that his sons are inadequate for leadership. They also see the looming threats of enemies all around their borders. And so they are moved to demand of Samuel a king. Now, I believe, biblically speaking, that it was not necessarily sinful to request a king. God had promised Abraham that kings would be born from his line. Even Deuteronomy 17, Moses anticipates the day when Israel will have a king and makes provisions for the king. But as James chapter 4 warns, the elders of Israel ask with wrong motives. Notice that God answers the prayers of Samuel, pointing out that they had rejected him as king and that the people will reap the consequences. But even in the people's sin, God's plan of redemption will not be thwarted. The people will indeed receive his unmerited favor, a true righteous king in the end. Well, Samuel is not pleased with the elders' request. Many interpreters conclude that it was because they asked for a king like the nations, and that is a possible interpretation. But as I've already mentioned, Moses did not forbid such a king. He anticipated the day when Israel would ask for a king like the nations and goes on to specify requirements for the king in Deuteronomy 17 that we'll refer to later. A king has some advantages. Political stability, administrative efficiency, military readiness. And monarchy was the government of choice in the ancient world. But Samuel perceives something else going on here. The elders are asking from idolatrous hearts. They demonstrate a lack of faith in the Lord as their protector and are now looking to a human king. They have no prayer. They do not cry out to God in their distress. They want a man to deliver them and to do their bidding. Well, true to his character, Samuel takes this matter to the Lord in prayer. And perhaps surprising to Samuel, the Lord does not reject 
the request of the elders, but rather tell Samuel to obey their voice. Now, the Lord is not any more pleased with their request and the motives behind it than Samuel was. But notice that the Lord consoles Samuel, assuring him that he has not failed the people, and that people are not even rejecting him, Samuel, but rather the people are rejecting the Lord their God as king. Why is it so hard for people to accept God's sovereign rule over their lives? Ever since the fall, mankind has been hell-bent on building a kingdom of our own and fighting against God's kingdom. God's people had witnessed the Lord's might in toppling Egypt, the greatest empire in the world at that time, the Lord who carried them in the wilderness like a father with a little child, who overcame their enemies, and yet Israel is still chafing at God's kingship over them. They just can't seem to continue plowing, sowing, and reaping, managing their flocks, raising their children, gathering regularly for worship with a quiet and humble faith, trusting in the Lord's protection against the enemies that crowd their borders. The Lord calls out the people's idolatry in verse 8 and briefly records the history of his people ever since their days in Egypt have been an idolatrous and rebellious people even up to this very present day, forsaking the Lord their God and turning after the false gods of the nations. Living by faith is hard. It's only natural when we face threats in this fallen world to seek after security. We purchase life insurance. We save for retirement. We go to the dentist and the doctor for checkups. These and others are wise stewardship practices to help us manage life. But in all these things and more, we need to check our hearts. What is it that drives us? Is it godly wisdom or idolatrous obsession? Are we operating on a principle of in God we trust? Or are we merely trusting in our own wits, our 401ks, some other thing or person other than God? As we enter yet another political cycle, is it in Trump we trust? Or some other political candidate? One who will promise to protect religious liberties, who will appoint judges favorable to Christian and conservative concerns. I'm convinced that every political cycle is filled with idolatry. It's always easy to identify and spot idolatry in the other political camp, but do we recognize it in our own? Do we see it in our own hearts? I define myself as I enter into a major election year, I have to check my own heart. For I know myself when I find myself getting angry or my conservative principles being agitated by the news or an election result, I know I'm in a bad place. We all need to humble ourselves, reorient and ground ourselves in the Lord and in His Word. 
Well, the elders of Israel are failing. Rather than repent and humble themselves, they are seeking after mechanical techniques and not trusting the Lord. Sadly, we can do the same. Years ago, I had a friend from high school who notified me that her marriage was in trouble. And she and her husband were in a church, and they were trying to use the love and respect material. It's a, it's a helpful DVD series, book series by Dr. Emerson and Garrix. We've used it here at Westminster as well. But it didn't work for them. And they went on to divorce. And I believe in hindsight that their problem was that they were seeking a technique rather than true repentance before God. I know another couple in our church who have used love and respect with great effect, not because they followed its technique, but because they were teachable and demonstrate humble and repentant hearts. Early in our marriage, my wife and I read Shepherding a Child's Heart by author Ted Tripp. It's a very valuable resource because it focuses on heart issues in parenting, teaching and training the parent to confront one's own idols, to help identify and bring to the surface the idols in our children's hearts and to point both us, the parent, and the child back to Christ in repentance. It's a good heart check. Just yesterday, my wife took three of our sons to Mainham Township Township High School for a heart screening, a free thing offered by the school district. Not that we had any concerns about our sons, but it's a good idea to check out the hearts, get an echocardiogram for these three athletes in our household. Everything turned out just fine. But we need a heart check, whether it's marriage, parenting. What about money? Jesus says, where your money is, there your heart will be also. Money, marriage, parenting problems, leadership issues in the church or, the, or in the workplace can either be handled in a God-honoring way and humble repentance before our Lord is King or in a worldly manner that projects the sovereign lordship of the Lord our God. But the Lord instructs Samuel to offer a solemn warning to the elders of Israel about what kind of a king they would get to rule over them. The rejection of God as king comes with significant consequences. Samuel, who was faithful not to let any of the words of the Lord fall to the ground, is faithful once again to tell all the words of the Lord to his people Israel. They were hard words. The gospel has hard words. The good news is not the good news without the bad news. And if we would be faithful heralds of the king, we must be bearers of bad news, of sin and rebellion and the threat of eternity in hell if our hearers would have the hope of faith, repentance, and life eternal through Jesus Christ. Samuel warns Israel that they will lose freedom in their quest for security. 
No less than six times does he describe how the king will take as he brings the people into his service. Now, it begins reasonably. This king will take their sons to compose an army. He will take other sons to plow his fields and reap the harvest. He will also take their daughters to work as perfumers and cooks and bakers. Well, there's stable, steady government work. Sounds pretty good. But then the taking gets darker. He will take the best of their lands, their fields, their vineyards, their orchards for his officers. He will take more and more servants. He will take their donkeys to do his work. He will exact from them taxes, a tenth of their flocks. He will keep on taxing until the people are no more than mere slaves to the king's will. It will slowly become no longer a government serving the people, but a people existing to serve the government. It reminds us of what Jesus says, that whoever commits sin becomes a slave to sin. Sin takes, and we serve it as master. I think Stamos' words are prophetic for us today. A warning against the growth of government that would control our lives. We trade away our freedoms and our prosperity for security or someone else's definition of equality. We are blessed to live in one of the most prosperous and free nations the world has ever known, a nation governed by the rule of law with rights guaranteed by the Constitution, but all these things are under threat. We face mounting debt, ballooning bureaucracy, the loss of moral character and fiber, and the rise of government assuming more and more power and influence over the affairs of the governed. At the end of the day, government serves to meet the interest of government. I fear that the principle of government of the people and for the people slowly drifts into a people of the government and for the government. And this is a sad consequence of a people who have rejected faith in God and are turning to government or some ideology that can be fulfilled through government to provide one a source of hope, meaning, and purpose. Popular syndicated columnist Cal Thomas writes in a new book, America's Expiration Date, chronicles the history of great empires and how they rarely last more than 250 years, offers a warning as America approaches the same spread of empire in duration. Cal Thomas offers that we need the restoration of faith and character, a restoration of conviction of a national identity, a shared ethic and moral sense, the curbing of the devaluing of life in terms of abortion, of urban shootings where young men are killing each other. He seeks the restoration of self-sufficiency and resist dependency. We must beat and eliminate debt. A scripture says the borrower is slave to the lender. We find in Scripture a principle given to a free people. A free people must live in 
humble dependence upon the Lord. Perhaps you've experienced the difficulty of giving wise and godly counsel to somebody that you know will only reject it. That is Samuel's situation. Perhaps you have a friend or a loved one determined to leave a spouse without any biblical grounds for doing so. Perhaps a professing believer refuses to follow biblical peacemaking principles to resolve a conflict. We can imagine that giving this counsel to the elders of Israel was hard for Samuel as it was for Jeremiah and for others in Scripture who give counsel only to be denied and rejected by a hard-hearted people. And so there is an implied warning to us here. To not be hard-hearted like Israel, but to be teachable, humble and repentant before the Lord. Behind Samuel's warning lies the principles that Scripture lays out for leadership. As Moses outlines in Deuteronomy 17 regarding the king, the king must be chosen by the Lord. He must be a fellow Israelite and not a foreigner. He must not accumulate for himself machines of war, multiple wives, or amass wealth for himself. But he must be a man of the word writing, copying his own copy of the law approved by the Levitical priest. The king of Israel was to abide by lex rex. The law is king. And that no man, no king is above the law. Rather, he is under the rule of God's sovereign authority. These leadership principles apply to the church. They apply to the Christian home. The leaders are to be chosen by God. A faithful believer not given to gain is to be a man of the word. I was especially pleased by the testimonies Wednesday night after youth group where several of our youth who expressed their appreciation for Chris Walker's ministry as youth pastor and what a great guy he is and how fun he is, and those things are certainly true, but even more importantly, how he impressed on several of our youth the importance of being in the Word, which is true of my own children who've been under Dr. Walker's ministry. There's a video coming out a week from tomorrow where Chris and Kate Walker will introduce themselves to the congregation, the community, and I encourage you to watch it on our website and, and follow the theme regarding the Word of God because that's what we need. That's what we need as a church. That's what we need in leadership. That's what we need in our homes. Well, lastly, in the final part of Samuel's solemn warning to the elders in Israel, he says in verse 18, anticipating the day that the people will cry out to the Lord, seeking relief from the oppression of their king. But the Lord will not pity and will not answer them. When it comes to worldly leaders, we often get what we deserve. The consequences of sin and idolatry in this life. Well, despite this warning, 
The elders refuse to obey Samuel's voice. They are not swayed, but remain resolved to gain for themselves a king like the nations, to go out before them and fight their battles. And he will not do it for free. He will demand a high price for the people's security. The Lord instructs Samuel to obey their voice, to anoint for them a king. And in the following chapters, he will do so, beginning with Saul, who began well, but whose reign ended in a train wreck, having jumped the rails by disobedience and security and self-protection. Then came David, a man after God's own heart. He was a good king the standard by which all kings after him would be measured. Yet he too was flawed. Judah would enjoy mostly stable reigns as the kingship was passed from father to son through peaceful transitions, except in the case of Athaliah, the wicked queen mother who ruled for a time. In contrast, Israel will suffer through ten dynasties, none of which last more than four generations, all ending in gruesome bloodbaths. And Israel endures half the time the Judah stands. But Samuel's warning, his prophecy, is fulfilled in the days of Solomon, who will inscript for himself forced labor, and after his reign... As his son Rehoboam takes the throne, the men will come to him asking for leniency. And Rehoboam stubbornly refuses, resulting in a split in the kingdom. The failures of Israel's kings only awakens in the godly the longing for one final righteous king who will reign perfectly and forever. God in his wisdom, God in his gracious resourcefulness, will use the sinful request of these elders to pave the pathway to this one true final king, the son of David. And what I find so beautiful in contrast is you, as you hear the war, solemn warning from Samuel about the nature of worldly kings, we see the vivid contrast in that God as king does not demand payment in exchange for security, our eternal salvation. We have a God and king who has exacted the price from himself, making the sacrifice for us, paying the cost at his own expense, spending his son, our Redeemer, who covers over our sins by his atoning sacrifice and his righteous blood. Rather than having a king that taxes and demands, we have one who freely gives and serves. Rather than a king who takes our sons and daughters, he adopts them, commissions them to be his ambassadors. And we have a God and King who does not take our land and our fruits and our resources, but generously grants them and causes them to multiply. Thankfully, we have a gracious God who gives us the leadership 
that is more and better than we deserve. The God-man, Jesus Christ, is our king. He defends his people from oppressive government regimes as we find in East Asia as our brothers and sisters suffer severely. Who rescues us from the seduction of a material and worldly Western world, the conditions we face every single day. Jesus is our shepherd leader, the king who tenderly cares for us, who heals our wounds, who welcomes our service into his royal courts. He does not take our children or rob us of our tithes and properties. Rather, he's the one who gives back abundantly more than ever than we can ever offer him by way of sacrifice or service. Be not like the blind-sighted, hard-hearted men of Jesus' parable that said, we don't want this man to reign over us. Rather, humbly yield to him. Gladly embrace his kingship, his righteous rule over us. Offer to the Lord our King your very self, your gifts, your time, your talents. Offer him your children, your children's children into his service. Because we serve a king who takes the weak and makes them strong. Who takes the the fool and makes him wise. Who takes the poor and makes them rich. Who takes the timid and makes them bolder than lions. The king who welcomes the outcast and makes him acceptable to enter into his fellowship. Trust him. The Lord Jesus, our only God and Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Follow him faithfully to the end until that day when we appear in his presence and he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let us pray. Our great God and King, how pleasant and good it is to serve you to serve a true, righteous king who gives far more than he takes or requires from us. We worship you. We magnify you. We offer you our service this week. Go with us. Give us your grace to be your ambassadors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.